ahead and grab out something uh, to take some notes with and your Bible today. We are kicking off a brand new series today. Uh, I know that we finished the summer series last Sunday, uh, and I know that you may think that you are done with summer, kids are back in school and the rest, but nobody told our weather, right? Nobody like went outside and shouted it at the sky because it has been incredibly, I don't, I don't even know how to explain like walking outside in this. And so if you work outside, my respect for you has gone through the roof. If you are outside most of the days, you understand just how hot it has been, except for the cold front we had Thursday morning, right? Except for like anybody outside about 630 to about 635, we had, we had a moment that was just amazing. It was incredible. Uh, for about five minutes, it was one degree less than boiling here in Louisiana, and we all enjoyed it, and then we all had that fleeting, it was just gone. It was gone from our lives. It's just been incredible. But wasn't that nice? But as I was planning out our next series, um, this is a thought I've had for a little while, and that is sometimes I like to match seasons and series uh, to the seasons that we're in, to the conversations I have with a lot of you, to the different things uh, that you talk about in the different times of the year. I love to study what God's Word has to say, and a lot of different, sometimes we theme them around different things. And so I thought it would be fun. Uh, Labor Day's coming up pretty soon, and so a lot of people I've talked to are talking about fishing and Boating and out on the lake and all the different things that we do, even though it's 10,000 degrees, you still love to do all those stuff. Now, I personally don't own a boat, but I know lots of people who do. Come on, somebody. That's just amazing. Get an amen in God's house. Praise God for friends who have boats. Come on. That's the way to do it because uh, you don't have to pay all those rising gas prices. You just enjoy the boat. Come on. It's just an amazing thing. Some of you are ashamed. You're sitting next to the person with the boat that you take advantage of and you don't want to say anything. Praise the Lord for friends with boats. Because when we think about boats, we think about like leisure activity. We think about fun and sun and all the different things we like to do. Maybe some of you think about going on a cruise. Come on, big metal death trap. 10,000 people you don't know wandering through international waters. Some of you just like, I'm just kidding. I love cruises. I'm out there. I'm all for it. Like I will be the first one on the boat. But most of us, when we think about boats, we think about wonderful experiences, lots of fun. And so I had an idea. Why not do a series about boats? A lot of boat stories in the Bible. A lot of stories about So we decided we're going to do a series out on the water. Just thought we'd do a series about that. Kind of committed to it. Was all excited about it. Then I got into studying and realized most of the boat stories in the Bible are pretty dark. Like This has nothing to do with leisure activities or fun. You got people dying. Got storms raging. A lot of crazy things happening. And so that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. It's going to be amazing, everybody. Uh, while you're enjoying your boat, or maybe you're watching online from a boat, we're going to remind you how dangerous it actually is. Amen, everybody? It's going to be, it's going to be good. Very spiritual this morning. All right. Today, we're going to talk about probably the most significant boat in human history, the one that nearly every person alive knows about, the ark. We're going to talk about the ark. We're going to bounce back and forth from the account in Genesis, talk about the boat that saved the world. And we're going to bounce from the account in Genesis, the story, to this other scripture verse in Hebrews chapter 11. We'll go there. Verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. It's this phenomenal story about how God inspired Noah, not only save his family, but preserve the human race. We're going to learn how a 500-year-old farmer was able to build and preserve humanity through a ship. And what I want you to consider as we talk about this, the New Testament is clear about considering the life of faith that Noah lived and how that can impact our own spiritual journey. 
How God called Noah to do something that no one had ever done, to prepare for something that no one had ever seen. And in faith, it says Noah obeyed in holy fear, Noah believed. And so I want you to see this uh, in this story, that every single one of us are called to do something. Every single one of us are called to live a life of faith. And so the Bible talks about these heroes of the faith, that we can learn how Noah's faith impacted his life and what we can do to follow God in our own. Amen, everybody? And so we're going to learn a little bit. We're going to put our trust into action. And maybe you're called to build something that impacts your world around you. Maybe you're called to build a godly marriage or to raise godly children. Or maybe you're called to build a business that blesses. Or maybe all three. And what I want you to see is as we're called to impact them, a life of faith in God is the only way that will actually impact the generation around us. That you want to have an eternal impact, it begins with a life of faith. But first, let's go to Genesis. Let me kind of set up the story for you. The world is growing increasingly wicked at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. And the Bible talks about how there were this race of giants, this Nephilim on the earth. And so this wickedness is growing to this incredible rate. And so like the Marvel Universe, that happens in Genesis 6, if you just want to know that, right? That's when all this takes place. And so Genesis 6, the wickedness has risen before God. God realizes all that is happening on the earth. And God actually says, I regret that I have done this. I regret that I've created this. I regret it's incredible to see God. Only a few hundred years removed, only a few generations removed from when he created it all and called it exceedingly good. This incredible thing. And now he's like, I regret I did any of this stuff. I regret that any of this, it's almost completely ruined. In fact, we'll pick it up. Verse 6 of Genesis, the Lord said, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And within the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But here's the saving grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love this thought that in the middle of the chaos, and you can, you can paint whatever picture you want for this, any kind of debauchery or sin, anything that you think in your mind would be the worst of the worst is happening at this moment. In the middle of that, Noah was still able to live a life that caught God's attention. Was still able to live a life that honored God with the decisions and the things that he did. And I think that's encouraging to us. I don't care how dark the world gets. I don't care how bad culture around us looks. I don't care what everybody's trying to say. I don't care how bent it becomes. It is still possible to live a life that honors God. It is still possible. It doesn't matter what the storm rages around us. It doesn't matter what culture tries to pull us to. It is still possible by the grace of the Lord that we can live lives that honor God with the decisions that we make. That our families can be light to others of what it means to follow the Lord. That can be said of us. And so, in fact, it goes on to say, here's why he had the favor, the account of Noah. A righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, that word blameless doesn't mean that Noah never sinned, right? Because Noah was a human, and we understand that sin impacts us all. What actually that word means there, a lot of times, compared to the people of his time, Noah was blameless. In fact, a lot of theologians believe that it was so bad that Noah probably sinned. Noah messed up. Noah did a lot of things, but people, it was so bad that compared to them, Noah was blameless. Come on, somebody. Some of you are like, that's my workplace right now. Like, that's just how I, I am a blameless person compared to all of them. And here's the reason why Noah was blameless for the Lord, because he walked faithfully, back there in that verse, he walked faithfully with God. That's what I want to encourage you today. None of you are ever going to be perfect this side of heaven. Nobody's going to be perfect. We all have failures. We all mess up. We all have mistakes. We all have issues from our past that we deal with. And the devil would love to convince you that because you messed up, because you screwed something up in the past, because of whatever it is, that that somehow disqualifies you from God ever using you. That it somehow negates the call of God on your life. 
No, what God is looking for is the condition of your heart and our pursuit and the blood of Jesus. That's what he's looking for. We have to put him first. It's not that we're condoning sin. I'm not saying go out and live a compromised life. It's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is what separates us from people who don't follow God is when we mess up. When we make mistakes, what separates us is not that we would never mess up. I just want to break that to you just clearly, everybody. Not that we would somehow live this perfect. But when we do, we repent of our sin and we pursue Jesus. That we run after him, a relationship with him. And that's the story of Noah's life. Noah walked faithfully with the Lord. The Bible goes on to say he walked faithfully. And then it tells us that he had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if you're needing to name a baby in the next couple of months, here you go, everybody. I'll give you some really great... I apologize if your name is Japheth. All right, I just go ahead and apologize ahead of time. In fact, at the end of chapter 5, it tells us that this, that Noah... And actually, we'll go back to that one, because at the end of one of the chapters, it tells us that Noah was 500 years old when he had these boys. 500 years old, which reading this, just a couple of thoughts about that. First of all, I got really convicted reading this because I complain all the time. My kids are 10, 9, and 5, and all the time I'm like, I'm too old for this. Like, I just, I can't, I can't handle it. Like, my knees can't do that. My back can't do it. I'm just too old. I can't run fast anymore. I just keep saying, like, I'm too old. But Noah was 500 years old, and so I have no excuse, all right? I just, I'm just going to have to buckle down. I would also like to say, and this is just take it or leave it, that it wasn't all that magnificent that this guy, who'd never built a ship before, managed to build one from scratch in about 70 or 80 years because he had 500 years without kids to master every hobby on planet Earth. <laughs> I don't know, like, like he, of course he was good at woodworking. Like, of course he could do all of these hobbies and things. How much could you learn to do with that much time and no kids? Come on, somebody. Like, how much could you just put your time into all this? This is just a personal thing I have, all right? I'm just working through some stuff up here. Like, of course, if you meet somebody who's like in their 70s or 80s who knows how to fix everything. And you're like, how is this possible? Well, it's because if you own a house for more than like five years, you just learn how to do stuff. You just learn like how to fix things, how to just jerry-rig everything. You just learn that kind of stuff. Noah's got 500 years, no kids. He can pick up every hobby on planet Earth. That's just my own thing. Well, this guy, of course... He knows how to do everything. So here he is with these kids. And God says to Noah, Noah, I'm about to put an end to everything on the earth. He comes to Noah one day. Noah's just having his morning coffee, just having a good time. And God shows up and tells him, hey, I'm about to put an end to all of this. For the earth is filled with violence because I'm surely going to destroy them and the earth. So here's the plan. I want you to make yourself an ark of cypress. Wood, make rooms in it. Coat it with pitch inside and out. And here's the dimensions to build it. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. And we're going to get to cubits in just a little bit, a few moments. We'll talk about this. Uh, but a few years back, Nick did the study on this for one of his classes at the academy. Uh, the size roughly of the ark, if we're just kind of drawing some generalizations out there, is about the size of our parking lot if you go out between us and the school. So today, you go float on the ark out there, all right? If you want a general idea about the size from this corner to the back of the parking lot, about the same proportions and width. Now, we didn't know that our parking lot was scriptural, but come on, somebody. It's just amazing. That, I'm sure that's what they plan to do. And so I want you to add a roof for it. Leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around, put a door in the side, make lower, middle, upper decks. We're going to come back to this. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all the life under the heavens. Every creature with the breath of life, everything will perish. But I'll establish my covenant with you and you'll enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind, the birds, the animals, the creatures that move will come to be kept alive. And you're to take every kind of food to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. God's giving him specific things to do. 
And watch this. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So here's the key, the Bible says, that God gives Noah some pretty specific instructions. He's like, Noah, it's about to get really dark really fast. Like, it's about, things are about to happen. Like, it's a dark prophecy. There's going to be some challenges that come. And Noah, I need you to do something significant with your life that's not only going to save your family, but it's going to preserve the life that's on the earth. Noah's got this huge task ahead of him. And we see from our text, we want to accomplish it. Only way he does it is through faith. The only way Noah does it, by faith, Noah, when warned about the things, this moment we're talking about, when God comes to him and says, this is what's going to happen, by faith, Noah built an ark to save his family. We're going to bounce, like I said, between this text and the account in Genesis, because I think there are some keys we can take away from the way Noah lived his life, the way he obeyed in faith. First thing I want you to see is Noah's warned about things not yet seen, but he still built an ark. First thing that marked his faith, and you can jot it down if you're taking notes. First thing that marked his faith is that Noah believed. That he believed. He's warned about something the world has never comprehended before. Like God comes to Noah and gives him this idea that there's going to be a worldwide flood. Noah's never had this kind of context. Like he has nothing to reference in his mind. Like if the Lord came to you and said, hey, we're going to destroy the world and a volcano is going to erupt. Or like a nuclear disaster. It would take a lot of faith to believe that. Like, you'd have to take a lot of faith. You probably think you were losing your mind. Take a lot of faith to, like, start building the bunker or start doing whatever it is. It would take some faith to take that step to do. But at least you would have a frame of reference. You're like, okay, I've seen cataclysmic events. I live in Louisiana. I know what a flood is. I've been, like, I understand some of these things. I have Noah's example. You would have some frame. Noah has nothing. And yet the Bible says he still believed what God told him. As far away from him as like trying to explain to a mouse what the moon is. In Noah's mind, he has no frame of reference. And yet he still believes what God told him. A lot of challenges to that belief. Some theologians believe not only had it never flooded, maybe it had never even rained before. Back to Genesis, it says in the creation account in chapter 2, No shrub appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain and no one to work the ground. And watch this, it says, But streams came from the earth... And watered the whole surface of the ground. So this is this idea of this like heavy dew or stream. This is like God's sprinkler system, like watering the whole earth. I was reading that this week and I thought, how did we mess that one up? Like, this is incredible. I don't know about you, but like, it has been impossible to keep plants alive the last couple of months. Anybody? You're just in that boat? Like, it is just impossible. If you have been on the campus, you might have seen my father out there with like this 8,000 gallon uh, machine trying to keep these stinking shrubs alive down the way because you all like them so much and so we're trying to keep them alive just go ahead and take them home just go ahead every one of you pick a shrub and take it home because we it is impossible to keep things alive like, or maybe you're out in your garden like we we're out last night trying to water our plants like you're out with a hose like counting one two three four. like do we really need this plant like really like does it just let it die let's just go into like one two mosquitoes are eating your flesh it's a thousand degrees you're trying to water stuff like this would be incredible god just watered it all that's what we need everybody that's the curse right there that's what that is right there now other theologians argue that this was because adam hadn't been created yet and this idea maybe there was rain god doesn't specifically talk about rain when he tells noah what's about to happen but he just said look noah read a moment ago i'm going to bring the flood waters on the earth i'm going to destroy it all everything on earth is going to perish and so this prophecy he's about to prepare for no context no comprehension of the scale no idea kind of a difficult thing for noah to believe in but doesn't that look like what faith should be That there is no concept of maybe what happens after you take the step. All of us want that assurance. 
But that's not what faith is. Faith isn't this, here's step nine and ten, so get started with step one. Step one is, would you trust me to step out? Faith in our lives that looks, Noah has more claim to this than maybe any of us. That God gives him something he has no idea about, and yet it still says he believed. Still says Noah trusted God. And then he lives in this incredibly godless culture. Like he didn't have a lot of fans cheering him on. It wasn't like he built the stands, the stadium first, and then started building the ark in the middle so they could all come and cheer for him. No, the people that were around Noah is the reason he's building the ark in the first place. Remember this incredible wickedness on the earth? And so nobody's like trying to cheer Noah. Nobody's like, Noah, you're the best. Noah, thank you for... Nobody's like that around him. In fact, they're probably jabbing and jeering, probably making fun of Noah for spending so much of his life trying to do this thing. Something they had no comprehension of, and yet Noah believed God in the midst of it. People who were far from God. Now, Noah did have one person probably in his corner. Uh, And so there's somebody, it was interesting studying this week to see, Noah's grandfather was a guy by the name of Methuselah. And so if you've been in church a while, you might have heard Methuselah's name. A lot of people know Methuselah as being the oldest man to ever live. So he lived 969 years. And I was thinking, how much back pain did that guy have by the end of like a millennium, right? Come on, I'm too old for this. I have it already. It just how much? And so Methuselah lived 969 years. And the thing that's fascinating is we probably disconnect Noah from creation a lot of times. We think he's pretty. Because if you've read in your Bible, you've probably seen it's 10 generations. It seems like a long time between Adam and Noah. It seems like a long time till you realize how long these dudes used to live. And so actually, Methuselah, 969, Adam lived 930 years. And so studying out, Methuselah and Adam overlapped by about 243 years. They probably knew each other. Come on, somebody. That's a long time. 200 years, they probably... So Methuselah probably talked directly to Adam about creation, about sin, about God's plan for the world, about how it all looked, about the different things. And then Methuselah was alive all of Noah's 600 years, those first, that he would be able to pour into Noah, be able to talk with him, encourage him the 70, 80 years he had while he was building the ark. But another fascinating thing about the story is Methuselah's name. It means, both in the Old Testament Hebrew and in the New Testament Greek, when you see him listed in the lineage of Christ, Methuselah's name means when he dies, then comes judgment. When he dies comes judgment. So we know he died in the year of the flood. And so 70, 80 years, he's probably encouraging Noah, probably talking to him about the voice of the Lord and about the things that he's doing. And then when he died, Noah probably knew, hey, things are about to get dark really, really quick. But I think it's amazing to study that his name means when he dies, judgment will come. And many theologians believe that the reason Methuselah is the longest living person on earth is it demonstrates the mercy and the grace of God. That his name means judgment is coming. There's going to be judgment for this wickedness. But he lives so long that God, in so many instances, you see it all throughout the Bible, you see it today, that God prolongs and delays his judgment so that people would repent. That there would be this idea of grace and mercy, that he would delay it long. There needs to be judgment and a reckoning for sin, but God, in his mercy, delays it. That he keeps it, that he has such a love that people would turn and repent. Kind of a cool study. So Methuselah is there for Noah, but nobody else is. Nobody else cares. Entire world, people around think he's crazy, but he's actually trying to win them for the Lord. I don't know what this looked like in Noah's life. Like if he's like swinging the hammer and preaching, whatever. But Second Peter talks about, it says that in this world, God didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. So Noah's preaching his heart out, but he only saved his family. But he preached, right? Noah's trying to live a righteous life. He's trying to save as many people as he can. And it doesn't work. But at least he believes God in what God told him. He believes him. 
And we live in a culture like Noah's that we, while we're swinging the hammer, trying to build whatever God has called us to do, we need to be able to preach what we believe to others around us. And maybe unlike Noah, we're actually going to save some people. That we're actually going to bring them to the light that God has called us to. Because we live in a culture that would love to have us be like them in every scenario so they can move on to the next person and break them down. But I promise you, you follow the crowd, you will end somewhere you don't want to be. Every single time. And Noah has to hold fast in both. He believes what God told him. And he believes what God said is going to happen. I found a fascinating story about a race that was held. This NCAA cross-country race. Held out in California in the early 2000s. Had 128 runners run this race. And they got started and they're running through. Had a lot of twists and turns and things that they did. The entire field managed to miss a turn. Except for this one guy. This one guy noticed that the turn went right while the rest of them went straight. And his name was Mike Del Cavo. And so Mike sees what the turn's supposed to be. He sees the entire field running the other way. And so he takes the turn and then he starts like jumping and shouting and yelling for whatever reason. Because, right, I would keep it a secret. But Mike's a better man than I am. Mike's like trying to get anybody he can to follow him the correct way of the race. Only three people or four people followed him. Four people came after Mike. And so 123 of the 128 people were disqualified for running the wrong way. Finished the race, but were disqualified because they took the wrong turn. And they interviewed Mike after the race. And they asked him, like, what happened at that moment? Like, how did you know? And all these things. And then they asked him about that moment that when you made the decision to not follow the crowd... And here's the quote. I think it's fascinating and applicable to today. Here's what he said. He said, they thought it was funny that I went the right way. He said, Those, all the people I was trying to shout at, they, just, they thought it was funny that I went the right way. You think about that for a minute, because I think it can be applicable to our everyday lives. The world, in case you haven't noticed, thinks it's funny when you try to live the right way. I think it's funny when you try to live by whatever moral standards or whatever thing you say that God's word says. When you try to live a way that honors God, they think it's funny. They're laughing at you when you have a standard that you set in your own life. They think it's crazy the way that we do marriage. They think it's crazy this thought that you would save yourself until marriage. They think it's crazy that you won't just kill your unborn child because it's an inc- They think it's crazy that you won't just live a life that conforms to their standards. They think it's insane that you would live moral standards like you're bringing them back to the dark ages and some archaic value system. They're laughing at you thinking you would live your life in that way. And you've just got to settle in your heart what you believe about God's word and what you believe about what it means to honor him with your life. Because nobody else can set that for you. You've got to make a decision. So am I going to give in to the crowd? Mike said, they laughed at me because I ran the right way. They laughed at me because I took the right turn. Listen, you've got to get grounded in what you believe that God's word says and understand what absolute truth is because there is such a thing. That his word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that there is a judgment coming, whether in this life or the next That every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so I would rather be laughed at. I'd rather be laughed at in this life than judged when I get to heaven. I'd rather be laughed at in this because there is a flood coming. And unless people get the message, they are going to drown and you cannot be influenced by them. You cannot let your life. In fact, Jesus said this way in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And there's a whole lot of people that find this gate. But then he says, but small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Don't be shocked as a believer when you find yourself in the few. Don't be shocked as a believer when you find yourself that others who may call themselves believers aren't in the few. 
They've decided to give in to the cares or the passions or the loves of this world. Don't be shocked when you find yourself in the minority of this idea that we would live by a moral standard. And listen, we pray all the time for revival and for souls because Jesus came that all would be saved. Jesus' invitation is to every single person that he came that all would hear the the knowledge and the saving grace of his victory on the cross and his resurrection. The salvation that he brings is for everyone. We pray for that. But Jesus himself prophesied that we would never be the majority. This idea of the narrow way, don't let it intimidate you into living the wrong way or following the wrong thing because mark my words, judgment will come. And Noah believed. Noah believed. And I pray you would settle in your heart. Because the devil works overtime to try to convince you that God doesn't love you. That God doesn't have a purpose for your life. That God's not even real. That this whole thing. The devil would love to convince you with the thoughts of your mind. But Paul said it this way in Romans. I love this verse. I want you to see the context of it. Because Paul said, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? And here's a question. Here's a question I think that so many people, both far from God and those who have followed God all their lives, have asked this question. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? See, this is the theological issues that so many people have, especially those who find themselves far from God. That they ask this question. In fact, they wrestle with it. The Bible talks about this, that any thought... These thoughts that are strongholds, they set themselves up against the knowledge of God. These kind of questions try to take strongholds in our minds, try to convince us that God doesn't love us. And Paul is addressing that here, because people who are far from God will ask that question. Well, if there is a loving God, then why is there war? And why is there crime? And why did I have to walk through that pain? Why did my friend die? And why did these things happen in my life? If God really loved me, then I wouldn't have to go through that. And Paul is addressing it. He's making that argument. Does it mean that God doesn't love us when we walk through these things? And watch this. He says, absolutely not. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And watch this. He says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Not the trials, not calamities, not the pain of this life. Nothing can separate us from God's life. Neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. That nothing, Paul says, nothing can separate us. That God loves us and it doesn't matter what you walk through in this life. you got to get to the place where you recognize God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. It doesn't matter what a broken world tries to throw against you. Victory is ours in Christ Jesus. That we would walk through these things in life just because you might be wrestling or struggling with something. It doesn't negate the power of God on your life. It doesn't negate the love that God feels for you. It doesn't mean that your eternity is not secure in heaven. And it doesn't negate the victory that Jesus won on the cross. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so Paul is saying you got to settle this in your heart. Got to settle these things that even though we go through some things in this life, just means we live in a broken world full of sin, but that the victory of God is secure, that our eternity is in his hands, that he loves us. The devil would love to make you question, would love to wheedle in and give you thoughts of, well, it doesn't really mean it doesn't do. Why are you building a boat? Nobody else is building a boat. Why would you believe what God said? Nobody else is believing what God said. Why would you live a life like this? Nobody else is living a life like this. The devil loved to let you have those thoughts. Nobody else believes a storm is coming. Noah had to stand. He had to believe. Back to our text in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, when warned about things not yet seen, and holy fear built an ark to save his family. Faith has to move from what we believe now to what we do. Number two, jot it down. I've been taking notes. Noah not only believed, Noah built. He began to build an ark. 
We talk about this here at Victory all the time. What we believe has to affect what we do. Noah has his faith and he puts it into actions. Verse 22 of chapter 6, we read it a moment ago. Noah did everything just as God commanded. He did everything. John Diver taking notes. A life of faith is a life of doing. Just make it really complicated today, all right? A life of faith is a life. Faith is not this only set of beliefs we have. Like, yes, okay, I believe that, okay? Faith is not just believing God is out there somewhere. Faith is believing Him to the extent that we obey what He says to do. Faith is putting our trust in Him and obeying. Faith putting into act. James said it this way, chapter 2. says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action... Is dead. I love James. James just like hits you upside the head with it, right? But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. He's kind of like taunting them. Like, you can't do this. Like, he's just like, show me. Show me your faith without deeds. And I will show you my faith by what I do. Every time I read James, it's like, like, I don't know, I'm just reminded. Every time I read through the book of James, it's like a Nike commercial. Like, James is just pleading, like, just do it. Like, just please, like, forget all the arguments. Forget all this, just... Do something. Like just, I don't know, that blesses me. He said, I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. The way we live our lives shows how we trust God. The actions that we take shows the faith that we have in Him. It's not about what we say. It's about not about just what we say we believe. It's about how we live. Because at some point, your faith has to turn into action. We talk about this definition a lot. That faith is trust that produces action. It's this idea that it would be this trust in God that it changes something. Noah could have had the faith that a whole lot of Americans have, and he and his family would have drowned. He could have been like, yeah, I trust God. I believe there is a God. I believe in provision, and I believe in heaven. I believe in God. I believe there is something coming, but I ain't doing nothing about it. I, I surely do believe. I do, Pastor. I believe. I believe. In all, and I'm, but I'm not doing nothing. And Noah and his family would have drowned just like everybody else. He could have heard the word of the Lord, done nothing, and he'd have drowned, we'd all be dead. Praise the Lord. He did something about it. Noah believed God, and then he had to step out in faith and do something he'd never done to prepare for something he had never seen. He had to do something in faith. That's the crux of faith. God has called us to live this life. And maybe he's called you to live a life that's a little uncomfortable. But if you are not ready for discomfort, you are not ready to serve Jesus. If you are not ready... For pain and struggle in this idea of a faithful life, then you are not ready to serve the Lord. You're certainly not ready to save your family or to change or impact the world around you. That God has called us, because God's always calling us to step out. To do something that maybe we don't have a frame of reference. To do something that maybe is a little bit risky. To impact the kingdom and to spread the gospel. And to preach Jesus to others. Something we're supposed to do. And God has some specifics for Noah as well. I love this part of the story. God comes back to verse 22. He says, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Now this is interesting here, right? Because God gives him specific instructions on what to do. And Noah did everything. And so he comes to him, he says, make this out of cypress wood. Now the King James originally translated this gopher wood. But that's kind of a problem. Because there's so many arguments and nobody knows what gopher wood really was. But God knew and Noah understood. Like, that's the only connection God needed to make. He doesn't need you to know what gopher wood is. Noah understood. He needs you to understand what it is he's called you to do. Come on, somebody. That'll preach right there. Make rooms in it. And that word rooms is translated like nests, these compartments, and coat it with pitch, right? So it'd be waterproof. That would be important to be buoyant in the water. Like, it's like Noah doesn't have any idea. Like, he's not a shipbuilder. But God knew. God's telling him inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide. And 30 cubits high. Now, a cubit this week, I learned, is the measurement from the tip of a man's elbow to the top of his middle finger. 
And so that, you can see how that would cause theologians just all kinds of headaches trying to figure. So God really, what he gave him was a ratio. He gave him the proportions of, hey, this is how it should look. And these are the proportions. Because again, God understood and Noah understood. And that's the link that God needed. But I thought, I started thinking like, in the first place, like, what does this measurement system even look like? Like, are you like, (laughs) anybody ever measured? Now, I like to keep a couple of tape measures in my house from my shop. Because I like to have them just on hand when I need them. But my kids like to steal them uh, and play with them and pull them all the way out to the warning track and further. Come on, they like to break tape measures. I've warned them, they don't care. Come on. It just is the way it is. And so I can never find the tape measure. So I have long measured like this. Anybody ever done like a long type of things? I didn't know it was scriptural. There you go. That's just the way I didn't understand. So kind of difficult for him, I would think. Could have been a range of sizes, but the proportions are what matters. It's critical for the journey. We'll see in just a moment. Then he says, below the roof, I want you to make an opening one cubit high all around for air. Put a door in the side of the ark, lower, middle, and upper decks. So this thing is massive, whatever measurement they use. This thing is incredible. Could a whole, they, they estimate 1,300 modern-day shipping containers fit on this size of the ark. This massive, it's a massive vessel. And the reason we had to follow all of these things is because there's about to be a storm that he has no reference. This torrential rain is about to hit the earth. And the Bible talks about this. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, the seventh day, the second month, the springs of the great deep. So there's water, the earth opens, water from below and from above. This incredible deluge. This torrential storm, explosion of water. So the measurements mattered. The measurements that God gave Noah, it mattered. The ratio that he gave him mattered. In fact, studies done on the whole construction and the ratio found it nearly identical to modern day cargo ships. It's like God is God. Come on, somebody. It's just like, he's like, I know you don't know what you're doing, but here's something. This will work. Here you go. This is just a little gift to you. Just do this. This will work. But here's the thing. God has called us to do something in faith. God has a manual and he's given us instruction on how to do it. He's told us how to build a solid marriage. He told us how to raise godly children. He's called us to bless others with the finances. But here's the problem. We love to mess with ratios. That's like a thing that seems to just be so deep inside of us. We love, I love the result, but I'm going to mess with the ratio on how to get there. Oh, I'd love to, I just, I'd, I'd love to have a godly family. I'd love to have all these things, but I just don't want to do all of that to get to that place. I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to be sacrificial. I don't want to take the time and the hard work it takes to raise these kids up. I'll just abdicate that to somebody else. Let somebody else raise them. Somebody else put crazy theology and ideas in their head. Let somebody, I don't want to do all, but I want to have the end result. But I just kind of fiddle and mess with the ratio. I'd love to have a godly marriage and I'd love to have these things, but I just, I don't want, I just want to kind of just ease on by. I love to mess with the ratio on everything that I have to be mine. I'd love to be sacrificial and give to others, but I don't want to give them too much because I want everything to be mine that I, I work hard for that. If we mess with these rules that God has given us in our lives, we mess with these ideas about God's favor and we say, well, I believe in God and I don't want to go to hell, but I don't think I want to live my life that way. We mess with it. We try to make up our own rules for it. And then when the flood comes, we wonder why the whole thing capsizes. I tell you guys are excited about that. We wonder why it doesn't work. We wonder. God has specific designs for what our life is supposed to look like. You read his word. God has some specific ideas about the way we're supposed to live. But we don't really care about the ratios. But Noah was smart enough, praise the Lord, to follow what God told him to do. One of the most interesting thoughts I had about this too, reading this, something I never thought about, is God never gave Noah a rudder. Like Noah wasn't steering his ship. Like Noah just built it. God told him how to build it. Noah built it. And then God shut the door and he's like, you stay right here. I'll come get you when this whole thing is over. 
No one's steering his own ship. He just built the thing. You understand? Like this idea, that'll bless somebody right there. God closes the door, puts him in there, follow the principles of God's word. Back to our text one more time. It says, by faith, Noah. Back to Hebrews. He says, by faith, Noah believed. Warned about things that he would never seen before. Warned about things not yet that haven't happened yet. Noah believed he built the ark to save his family. That was the third thing. Noah believed, Noah obeyed. And then the third thing you see in the story, Noah was blessed. He's blessed. Genesis chapter 8, by the first day of the first month, said the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. And then in chapter 9, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And the fear and dread will fall on the beasts of the earth, the birds in the sky, the creatures that move, the fish in the sea, they're given into your hands. And everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, now I give you everything. Two blessings that God gave Noah. We have no time to spend on this, all right? We just, just, I thought it was interesting this week. First thing he said, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you kids, Noah. Be fruitful and multiply this blessing. And the second reward he gave, I don't know if you read this in the Hebrew. The second reward he gave him is a steak. Come on, somebody. He like children and steak, the blessings of the Lord. That's what God gave Noah. He said, everything green I already gave you. Come on, you vegetarians. And then he said, but now, Noah, you've been on that ark. You get to have a steak. It's amazing. Listen, God looked at Noah. <laughs> that's just free for you. You take that as you will. It's not me. That's Bible, everybody. That's what he said. He looked at He said, look, Noah, here's the blessings. Look, God has called us to do things in our life. God has called us to follow his word. God has called us to live lives that honor him. And he, God looked at Noah. And he's like, look, Noah, you did everything. You did everything that I asked you to do, and God blessed him. And when we believe God to the point that it impacts our lives, when we trust him in faith to the point that it impacts what we do, and we build what he has called us to do, guess what happens? God's favor rests on our life. Now listen to me very close. This isn't name it and claim it, blab it and grab it type of, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you follow God and you do everything he asked you to do and somehow you wake up rich tomorrow and everything happened happy in your life and all your problems have gone away. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying when God has called us to do something in faith and we step out, his favor rests on our life. You know what that looks like? It looks like when you and I stand before our creator one day and he looks at us and he says, well done, faithful servant. You did what I asked you to do. Every head bowed today as we pray. Father, I just ask you. God, I'm just asking you would give us the courage to live the life you have called us to live. That Noah in faith believed that he did what you tell him to do, God. That he stepped out in faith and that he was blessed in the favor of God in his life. So we say, God, what you have asked us, what you have called us to, what you have asked us to put our hand, that we would be faithful. That we would believe that you are who you say you are, that you love us. That we would settle in our heart what God's word says about our lives. That we would step out in faith to live lives that are light to that around us. And God, that the favor of God would rest on our life because we are full of faith. That we believe. That we let that belief affect our actions and that we would reach others for the gospel of Christ. And church, I want to pray a prayer that we would have the courage to stand on our faith. Even if the world laughs, even if... The ones around you think it's ridiculous the way that you're living. Even if all the storms of life come against you, that we would stand firm on what we know God's word says. What we know God has called us to do. Before I pray that prayer, though, I want to talk to some of you. Maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online. And you find yourself, for whatever reason, you find yourself outside the ark. You're far from God. In fact, you might be saying, I'm about as far from God as I could possibly. I think I have run farther from him than I have in my entire life. 
And look, I don't know what got you to that place. I don't know if it was a hurt or a pain or apathy or whatever it was. I don't know if it was just a season of life. I don't know what caused you to push people away or even push God away. I don't know how you got to where you are. But here's what I do know. That wherever you are, whatever part of life you find yourself in, whoever you are and whatever you've done, here's what I do know. That God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And that God is waiting and he still wants you. I don't care how hard you've pushed him away. I don't care how far you've run. God loves you and he wants you. That the salvation that Jesus died to give us is available to you. And so today I want to give an invitation. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I'm not making you come to the front. I'm not in this to embarrass you in front of your friends or family. That's not what I'm doing this for. Right now you have a chance. You have a chance to follow Jesus. I'm not talking about joining a church. I'm not going to take you to some back room. I'm not talking about giving anything, trying to extort money or anything. That's not, I, I want you to put all of that right now. You have a chance to follow Jesus. And I don't know where your life's going to go after you leave this place. I don't know what this week holds. I don't know what turns or decisions. Or I know that in this moment, you have a chance to make a decision. And the Bible says that each person gets to decide. And so it would be our honor as a church. We're going to pray this all together. I'm not singling you out. There are other times to go public with your faith. Right now you have to make a decision between you and your creator. But we would love to pray this prayer with you. Nobody prays alone. Our entire church, it's an honor that we get to pray this with every person who would want to make that decision to follow Jesus. It's why we exist as a church. So right now, I'm going to lead you in this prayer. I'm going to give you the words to say. But you have to decide in your own heart, I repent of my sins and I want to follow him. And here's the promise that he will make you brand new. That he will forgive every sin you ever committed. That there is nothing too, there is nothing too great that the blood of Jesus can't wash it clean. So right now, let's pray with them, church. Right now, say these words. Say, Jesus, save me. I repent of all of my sin. I believe you died on a cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, I pray over our church as we go today. Those in the room, those watching online, Father, that we would learn to live lives of faith. That we would see the example of Noah, that he believed, that he stepped out and did something, God. That it was accounted to him a life of faith. Lord, put that same strength in us. Father, that we say with our mouths what we believe, but that our actions would back that up. That we would live lives of faith that impact the generation around us. The things you've called us to put our hand to. Father, that we would step out. Thank you, Lord, for all you're doing, all that you have done. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, church. Can we put our hands together for what God has done today.